This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, for the suffering Podcast. 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 We grow up with an ideal of what adult life is supposed to look like. The great job, the big house, the nice car, and the perfect family. Surrounding ourselves with what is commonly referred to as being grown up. We set these expectations before us, never knowing if they're realistic. Life throws us curveballs and we're forced to change our perceptions, adjusting to a vision of life that we didn't see coming. What we want is not always what we can have. What we're given is always what we need. The equilibrium of life will always fall back into balance. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with a gentleman's name who is extraordinarily hard for me to pr- pronounce, and that's Roman Prokopchuk. You want me to do it? Ramon Prokopchuk. That's good. That's, right. that's really, really good. I and, hit it. <laughs> and we are here to t- discuss the suffering of miscarriages for men. We may not no, as men, we may not know what the physical pain's like, but we certainly know the emotional pain. Thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Before we get started, let's give a big shout out to our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We don't trust anybody, but we do trust Toyota of Hackensack. So if you're looking for a car, let them find you one. Go to toyotaofhackensack.com and they'll find you a car. So the Digital Savage Experience podcaster is in the house. <laughs> we got a pro. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually really nice to sit down with another podcaster because you get it. Yeah, it's kind of a, a different flow, a different kind of, I guess, vibe in a way. You know, you, when you get and, and I mean, we, we had this conversation before. Sometimes, like pulling pulling answers out of people. You know, it, when when you have and listen, we we are grateful for all our guests. Don't get me wrong, but when you have somebody who's never done a show, it's not their fault. They just they got inexperience. You know when to talk. You know when not to talk, you know when to break, and things like that. So it's really nice. Thank you so much for coming all this way. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, like I said. So, Roman, each week we take a, a question from our audience. This week's question comes from Salinas. It says, what do you feel no one understands about you? You could tell your whole life story to somebody, but there's something about you that you feel like, yeah, you just don't get it. What do you think? Uh, I think meeting me in general, like in a public setting or if it's like networking or for the first time, I think being brought up or being born in Eastern Europe and being brought up in kind of that culture, I'm more kind of reserved and stoic. So if I'm in a scenario, they're like, you know, you know what happened? Are you okay? Like, who are you about to beat up? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm content. (laughs) I'm happy. Well, it's the, so you're from Ukraine. Yes. I think there's, there's a thing about Eastern Bloc. The I don't know if it's a people. I don't know what the right term of it, the Eastern Bloc people. It's just they're, Eastern Bloc mentality. They're hard people. Yeah. They're hard people. Like they they've seen a lot of crap. They, they haven't had easy lives. So maybe that's got something to do with it, or maybe it's the bone structure, the skin tone. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a lot of founders and uh, unicorn companies, a lot of the people are from Eastern Europe. Or like first generation immigrants, or or their parents were immigrants. So I feel like they have kind of like an extra grit if they did grow up in that or obviously they heard it from their parents or grandparents so you know what i love about people from the eastern Bloc who immigrate to the united states they are so overly grateful to be here to be in america more so than people who were born here would you agree with that uh i would agree and most people i think seize opportunities more at a more rapid pace we actually did 
Airbnb for like a year, and we had two people from Belarus. Belarus mm-hmm. were like Russia staging. Some I know them from people. the Olympics. I can't yeah. say I know where it is on a map. Yeah, it's it's north of Ukraine and borders Russia. But literally, they both found jobs. They both got cell phones. They both got rent in like four days. And I like there's people just complaining and nitpicking. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But you know, they came here. They're grateful, appreciative, and whatever you get, you know, everything in life is a lesson or a blessing. So it's kind of a you know a, a building block or a cornerstone for whatever you have next. Well, th- th- there aren't too many people like from the Ukraine and from Russia that emigrated here that are homeless. This is true. Right? You know <laughs> they're, what? They're I never thought about that, but you're 100 uh, correct. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? What's one thing that people don't understand about you? You know, people tell me all the time before they meet me and get to know me that I look intense. You know, and like my kids growing up, all their friends were afraid of me. I'm five foot nine, 180 pounds. You know, maybe I have an intense look about me, but I just went out and met a couple of weeks ago. I met up with a, a guy from high school and his wife. She came up. I never met her before. She goes, are you always this intense? I said, I'm the most fun loving. We're sitting in a bar drinking and she's telling me I'm intense. I'm one of the most fun loving guys you'd ever want to meet. But you do have to break. I'm going to, I'm going to give you an outsider's perspective on this. You do have to break through your shell a little bit. And when people get to know you, you're different, you're different than what you appear. But it's really not a shell. It's, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's kind of like stoic. You know, you, you just have that look about you. And I guess I have, cause I always have a puss on my face, whether I'm happy or, or sad. It's called resting bitch face. Exactly. It's resting Mike face. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I always have that look and I could be having the best time in the world, but I just have that look about me and people think that I'm a miserable prick. Sometimes I am, but for the most part. <laughs> for me, I, I think, uh, one of the things you've seen this a little bit is, um, like you, I present myself a certain way. But what people don't realize, and they'll, they'll throw jabs thinking that I'm a lot tougher than I am because I, I'm extraordinarily sensitive, extraordinarily sensitive. He'll cry before the episode's over. Probably, probably. And that's one of the things that people don't get about me. But if you make fun of me while I'm crying, I may punch you. You know, that's that's the duality of me. So just because you see somebody like Mike, you know, you, you put that, don't think that you know them from the way they look. Because that's just a, it's judging a book by its cover. And it's a really bad lesson. Do, do you think it's cop mentality? I said it all the time, you know, as, as a cop, you got to put this, this shield around you, you know, cause you don't want anybody to really get to know you until you let them get to know you. Because it's a vulnerability. Yeah. And exactly. when people pick out your vulnerabilities, there are some people in this world who will capitalize on your vulnerabilities and you don't want that ever. But it's also qualifying people before you get to know them. Like if I, if I found out. You know, you, you look a certain way, but you probably got a real soft heart, you know? and that, that's, Which we'll find out today. Yeah, we'll find out. We're, we're <laughs> st- the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> Salinas, thank you so much for sending that in. Keep sending in your questions. We will try to get them on, you, on the air. So you traveled all this way from our near nation's capital or near or state's state capital. capital. State capital. Um, <clears throat> the episode that's airing this week of this recording, she's, she spent some time in Trenton, but I'm sure not, not the accommodations that you're in. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for coming. Roman, I've been reading a lot about you, but I really want you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So uh, first generation immigrant from Ukraine, came over when I was five with six other family members. Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union. So, you know, as we spoke uh, off air, my parents' family, you know, practiced, you know, believed in God, went to church. That's obviously against what you are in a, uh, obviously a communist state like China 
or it was the Soviet Union at the time. What what religion is it? Uh, well, I Just, mean, I, I consider myself non-denominational, but it was Pentecostal. It's basically Christian. Wait, Pentecostal was wow. So Pentecostal in in the United States, I'm sure you're aware, is is a high highly Latin community based, especially in this area. Yeah. And you know they're they're get up and dance people. Is yeah, very charismatic. Yeah, uh, I actually uh, have went for a while to a, a Spanish slash Ukrainian church, which was interesting. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it's similar. Um, like I said, uh, off air, there would be KGB outside of your house. They would take privileges away. My mom was like top of her class. They took that away from her. They took different other kind of like, I guess, social things away. Um, they would tap your you know phone. They would come to your house if you were like meeting at somebody's house in secret. So when uh, immigration opened up, basically we had the opportunity. We had a family member that distant family member that basically got to sponsor someone to come over. Basically, it, it takes liability. So if anything happens financially or otherwise, that person basically says that, you know, I will, you know, be the one that steps up and, and takes care of it. So we came over to a two bedroom apartment, uh, six family members, my grandparents on my mother's side, my mom, my aunt, my little brother that was 11 months at the time. So he went through a journey. So we started at uh, Ukraine and we went through Vienna, Austria, and then Rome, Italy. That was kind of like the the path to the U.S. at the time. Um, I was supposed to end up in California. So I like often think about that West Coast, East Coast dynamic. Your skin tone will not do well <laughs> in California. I hate to tell you. No, I'm, I'm well, I'm actually I was born. I look like uh, like I was from Saudi Arabia. They thought I was switched up birth. <laughs> I get really dark, actually. So that's <laughs> the Something weird. So when your parents came here, I don't know if, if they're still alive or not. When they came here and they had the religious, people take religious freedom for granted. They really do. But when they got here and they were able to worship the way, because who are they hurting? Like, seriously, who are you hurting? As long as you're not radicalized by religion. When they got here and they, they experienced firsthand the freedom of religion, what what was that experience like for them? I mean, gratitude and just thankfulness for for really being being here i mean like you said there's countries where like if you have a, you're fine with the bible you're executed in the world so it's like i don't know if we're just like even softened to religion but that there's like grittier it, well, i'm christian grittier christians that appreciate it and live it like live in fear day to day it's kind of like a like a different mindset here it's very comfortable and a lot of people in the u.s don't necessarily know how life is like in other countries because they're someone in a, you know, Western bubble. Yeah. Well, Western bubble. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. There's too many people in a Western bubble. You don't like imposing your ideology on someone. You know, that's why you we, know. that's, that's the basis of why this country was, was founded. Really. It's religious freedom through yeah. and through. So we got to keep that <clears throat> moving because when, you know, a lot of it is, um, if they take away religion in those countries, cause communism is very controlling, is that the right word for it? Yeah, like the state is your god in a way. You like mm. kind of bound down or in a way not worship, but kind of like they don't want anything between you, that connection between you and the state in a way. You know, because most people's lives, especially very religious people, it's, you know, even the military, it's God country. You know, yeah. God comes first. And I guess, and I get it when it comes to that. I mean, if you do, if you're if you're a student of history, like Hitler would never marry Eva Braun while he was in the height of his power because he wanted to be the people's man, you know, and he didn't want anybody getting between them and him. 
you know, it was that connection type of thing. So I'm assuming it's a lot like that. It's a control thing. And I don't think it's the right way to live, but I don't have to live in Russia or Ukraine. So is it like that still in Ukraine? No, I mean, it's, it's open to practice. Um, there was a situation recently that kind of got twisted because there were, uh, there's Orthodox, like Orthodoxy is the state religion. So there's the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And because it was the Russian Orthodox Church, they had like, um, I guess it's FSB, like KGB back in the day agents that would like, you know, monitor and, and do whatever, you know, spy like people do. Um, and I think the the head patriarch of the Russian church is a billionaire. So that kind of goes against the whole yeah. kind of... <laughs> being there for the people and not being of this world in a way. So, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of Russian Orthodox churches around, I don't want to say around the area, but you know, you see them pop up all the time. Is that people that just emigrated here from Russia and started up their own church? Cause they couldn't. Churches, I, churches are ultra profitable. Yeah. A lot, I mean, a lot of them have been around here, just like obviously like Catholic churches, mm. a lot of like Italian, you know, focused Catholic churches and they have bigger kind of like, I would say overlords in a way. I mean, I'm not about like the structure of religion. I'm more about the personal relationship. You know, you get through spirituality and having a personal relationship with God, because when you throw all this earthly stuff at it and, you know, you have to give me this, that, or the other. Yeah. It's, I'm not, I'm not about that. So here's here. Let me just sum that up for, for everybody. So when you go and, and this is, this goes, you go and worship whatever you worship. Okay. Whatever you worship. How do you feel? Uh, rejuvenated, kind of like that I can take on anything. How did your parents feel when they went and worshipped their God in Ukraine or Russia at the time? Uh, in fear of their life, of their freedom. There you go. There you go. And that that is the beauty of America. Now, when you came here, was America what you thought it was? Uh, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, you get kind of a, I guess, a, a view outside like not, not everything is kept from you how the u.s is although the soviet union and soviet union and the u.s were different at the time u.s obviously had more privileges even though you're talking about russia saying they're a superpower so on and so forth based on you know their nuclear arsenal really uh in a way yeah but like some some things like uh people took us to a mall and, and my mom's like all right cool i'm not really impressed like it's a mall because they were like you know, you're coming from Ukraine, kind of like mentality. You're in the middle of nowhere. Like, we, we well, look, we have mailboxes yeah, here. Yeah, I, can't, yeah, I came from a, a city that's a, a 750 year old city. It's on a UNESCO World Heritage site. So Vikings basically founded it. It's all cobblestone streets and stuff like that. Uh, architecture. So, so it was like you, a, a concrete mall. Like, cool. Your people, your people got Viking blood in them. Yeah, it was that's a Kivi. It's technically as a Kivian ruse. So like. Vikings went down all the rivers and, you know, riverways in Europe and plundered and whatever. But eventually they set up uh, settlements, started farming, kind of, you know, toned down the aggression a little bit. (laughs) So in Ukraine, they founded basically um, Kiev. So it was Kiev and Rus. They existed, uh, Kiev existed hundreds of years before Moscow was even a city. It was still like, you know, farmland and forests. You must have loved it when the Klitschko brothers were fighting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Ukraine produces uh, a lot of great fighters. Right now it's Usyk trying to challenge Fury, and then there's a lot of other, like Lomachenko. Mm. I mean, they're they're known for boxing. So that's uh, When you see the size of these gentlemen. Yeah, the Klitschko's are like 6'7". You're like, all right, you got some Viking blood in you. <laughs> <laughs> Till Valhalla. But so 
you, you become at six years old, I imagine you assimilated into American culture pretty, pretty easily. It wasn't that difficult for you. Yeah. Five into six. So in right into kindergarten, uh, I didn't speak the language, but if you learn English before a certain age, obviously you don't retain <clears> the <throat> accent and being amongst people that speak English for a majority of your week, you know, Monday to Friday, when you're at school, you start picking stuff up, picking up language really quickly. I, although I had an accent, so first and second grade, I was in ESL, which is English second language, yeah. and then I just tested out of it. So it took me really two and a half years to learn English to a point where I could take a test or have some kind of you know oral resuscitation where you know they were comfortable with me knowing the language. What what was the language you were speaking there? Was Ukrainian. You, you were speaking Ukrainian, not Russian. Yeah, I'm from like straight. But that's not <laughs> straight that's, up Ukrainian. I'm, <laughs> that's not our alphabet. That's the Cyrillic. Cyrillic, yeah. Cyrillic alphabet. Yep. Yeah. And so you had to not only learn the language, which English is the most difficult language in the world to learn because there's just so many different rules and exceptions to rules. But you also had to learn a new alphabet. Not like somebody coming from a, a Latin country, which uses the the Greek, you know, the the, the or the Latin based language. So was finding and, and English have so many words crazy that that they're, <laughs> they're spelt the same and mean different things you, ma- you <laughs> imagine you meet somebody from ukraine and say wtf yeah omg they'll be like what the fuck are you talking <laughs> yeah, about what the fuck they'd say yeah what the fuck right <laughs> exactly it's like a who's on first um yeah if you never watch who's on first that's that's the first thing i'd teach you immigrating into this country about english but uh you know what were you looked at this, were you assimilated into the group or were you picked on because you were from another country? Uh, I mean, I learned, like you said, I learned both languages at the same time, kind of. So I learned both alphabets. So it was just like, I mean, right now I can, when I speak to my mom, it's like half English, half Ukrainian, like a hybrid in a way. Ukrainish? Yeah. (laughs) We we call it Spanglish. Spanglish, Yeah. yeah, (laughs) But it was like people in a way took advantage because they're like, you know, go say this, like raise your hand and go call the teacher a bitch in kindergarten. (laughs) And I would do it. And I have no knowledge of what I'm saying. And then my mom comes to pick me up as soon as the the girl translated what I said. She didn't even finish translating (laughs) upside my head and like grab my ear and drag me home. Think about how powerful a weapon that could have been as you learned English. You know, you could you could just go around, bitch. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't speak the language. <laughs> you say something in Ukrainian, you're like, I'm sorry, I don't I don't understand what you're saying. So there are some times when you can use that stuff to your advantage. But you normal high school, normal childhood, you know, you you <clears throat> benefited from this country? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I I haven't spoken to my dad since two thousand eight. So there was domestic abuse when I was growing up. Um, you know, I, when he was, Oh, uh, they didn't come over with you. No, they did. They did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay, there was six right. of us, my parents, my, um, like I said, my grandparents, my aunt, my mom's sister and my brother. So it was basically when we were growing up when I was young, um, I carried over because he did it in Ukraine and there's a different mantra. I don't know how it is now before, like a woman couldn't call the police for domestic violence. They were just kind of like, okay, like deal with it. Yeah. Like it wasn't like a crime. It was just one of those things like, oh, this guy is keeping his wife or, you know, woman in line or whatever. So here, you know, you know, uh, even in Ukraine, uh, when my mom was pregnant with my brother, she, you know, she got thrown down the stairs and my brother was supposed to be stillborn. Luckily, you know, that didn't happen, but you know, he was uh, abusive physically to my grandparents, my aunt, everybody like, you know, in between. 
And right now I consider myself out of shape, but like when I started turning 18, I turned 18, I would be in the gym seven days a week. I got to a point where people were asking me if I was, I went to Rutgers, like on the football team, because I, I, I carried so much muscle and was consuming so many calories, but subconsciously I was, I was thinking like, if that situation ever, you know, caught up to me again, I wouldn't be like this little, you know, scared yeah. kid or whatever, not being able to do anything. I would be able to actually like kind of stand up and defend my mom, which directly happened in 2007 2008 and you know i kicked them out of the house and i was like you know you were able to do this when i'm little like hit her hit her now or hit me and see what happens mm. and it was just like a lot of like rage and pent-up aggression coming out yeah it's 13 years of rage <clears throat> yeah. now do you think your your father experienced that growing up and it was a normal thing to him he definitely did but it i mean i think it's mindset too so you can't be one of those things like you know everybody did it so that's my excuse. You know, it's like kind of growing up. Like I often say like two siblings, one turned out like their parents, maybe, you know, drugs or alcohol or abusive. And one is a successful, you know, person, upstanding person, philanthropic person. What's that thing that, you know, made them tick? Like you have that ability. It's not easy to change that, but you have the opportunity to do it. Absolutely. What did Stacey Ellis call it? Generational curses? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I, I see it a lot. And, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but as a foster parent, the, the children's parents were in foster care, so on and so forth. And the same kind of, you know, issues travel throughout. And I say it about like welfare too. You know, a lot of these kids mm -hmm. are brought up on welfare and they look up and they say, well, mommy and daddy don't have to work. And they get they get money. Yeah, we were on welfare for three months, and he took us off welfare, six people. So my grandparents were 55, both retired here. My grandmother had to clean houses. My grandfather did roofing for 20 years here from 55 to 75, wow. where dudes were coming here like 20, 25 years old to make money on a work visa from Ukraine. And they're like, I'm not doing this for more than like two weeks. I got to find something else. It would be in like 100 degree heat. Oh, if you ever did roofing, roofing is yeah, one of the most cold, brutal, yeah. brutal jobs and, ever. And 55 to 75, he did that without complaining Monday to Saturday. And then he would go to church uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night, and then the same kind of routine. Over, you you want to talk again. about the world's deadliest job? Try doing roofing as an Irish person. Yeah. Okay. I mean, those guys in Alaska have nothing on me. And I've done it. Listen, I did it for a short time, but you need everything gets beat up on you. Yeah. But th that's the mentality of especially first generation immigrants. First generation immigrants, they know what it's like yeah. back in their country. That's and they the don't way. want to go back, so they don't want to prove themselves here. And they'll work hard. And <clears throat> now, were they the type of immigrants to? keep every nickel um i mean to a certain extent i mean we weren't like frugal frugal but yeah i mean i guess they saved i mean my grandparents really didn't have a lot of expenses other than rent so they didn't really take that many vacations other than when we started kind of like you know being more stable taking them places mm. but other than that they went back a few times to take care of uh, elderly uh, family members in Ukraine that got sick or uh, developed like dementia, that kind of stuff. So they were in Ukraine and then they went back for like a year or two to care of whoever. And then, you know, kind of came back as well. Now, when you, you finally become of adult age, you, th you have this vision of what a grown up is supposed to be like all children have, you know, listen, I, I I remember when I was younger, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to grow a mustache when I, cause that was the big thing. Like, I'm going to grow a mustache. And, uh, you know, when you become older, it's like shaving was cool when you were younger, but shaving's not so cool now. What was your visions of what an adult is supposed to be? Uh, I guess a provider, 
And I mean, at that point, <clears throat> was it was, father, son, his kids? In yeah. Like it was telling myself I would be different than my father. So like at a young age, I would like reinforce that. Um, I guess, I, I don't know if I would call it a positive affirmation, but I didn't want people or kids, regardless of the kids in my life, either me being an uncle or kids of, you know, friends, anyone else, my own children to kind of be brought up in that situation, knowing you know, how it impacted me when I was young. So you learned that lesson and then you meet your lovely wife. All right. With your first wife out of the gate, is this, is, <laughs> was it the love of your life? Tell me you were starstruck in the beginning. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I've been just, this is my only marriage. So. This is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you call yourself an American. You got to get at least divorced once. Well, I mean, I can go to maybe uh, Dubai and have four, but yeah, yeah. sure. Well, listen, it's good for the men in there. Listen, not so good you for women. Stick with one. You you can't afford four wives. <laughs> believe me. Frank Barone from Everybody yeah. Loves Raymond. When you have a problem with a woman, you don't go out and get another problem. Yeah, but so, but that's good though. I mean, it, it's it's a nice thing to find somebody who you can connect with. What was it like when you met your wife? Uh, I mean, we dated for like a year, year and a half before we got married. So it's fairly kind of, I guess, quick. Uh, at one point before then, I mean, I went to college. I interned with the Secret Service. At one point, I was training to be a Marine Corps officer. So go from a college to officer candidate school. That's kind of like the, the path in terms of the Marines. So if you're in a university, you get a bachelor's degree, you can go to officer candidate school. And then if you finish that, you get a commission as a second lieutenant. Uh, officer, but I got sick. I had a, I didn't know I had a bacteria called H. pylori oh, sure. in my stomach. I had that for years. So like doing the pre-ship PFT, which is the physical uh, exam, I couldn't do the three miles. I would stop halfway and start spitting out blood. So in retrospect, if I went to Quantico, I probably would have died. So, you know, it's like, you know, blessing think, in disguise, yeah, thinking, really. thinking back and that's a way I kind of discovered it in a way. And, um, you know, after college, like, you know, stumbled in terms of my career, what I do now. And then I, you know, I met my wife, um, we were engaged, uh, and then she actually took a job. She was in Atlanta for, uh, 10 months. So I was kind of back and forth, uh, visiting her. And then she came back up here and then to save money, we just did a court ceremony. And then our five year, uh, anniversary, we had a vow renewal, which was kind of our ceremony. You were one of those few people, how many people, you know, got married, and said, oh, yeah, we're going to do the court ceremony, but we'll have a party later. We'll yeah. have a, and then the party never, because life gets in the way. Party never happens, but that's good. That's really good that you end up doing that. Yeah, we did it. Um, we kind of wanted to save money to begin with. So we actually, you know, bought a house instead of having a, a, a ceremony. An extravagant wedding. Well, I mean, there's, there's situations, uh, your, you know, your people... immigrant status is starting to come out. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the immigrant uh, buy a house. Like they, they just, they're good at that. They're like immigrant immigrants are good at that stuff. They really are. They're good at like planning themselves. Well, it's accountability too. I mean, you know, the U S is, I don't, I don't even know how we're going to get out of the debt we're in mm -hmm. as a country. I think every country is in debt, but I mean, being responsible for yourself, you know, fiscal responsibility, financial responsibility. It's kind of like one of those things. And I never want to owe anything to anyone. I'm one of those kind of people. Even back in the day in like high school and middle school, I borrowed $5 for lunch. I got to find the person the next day because it just like, it's like a burden on me. I can't like, you know. That's why I don't own a credit card. I don't even own one. I don't want one. I don't want to borrow money from anybody. I don't want to owe anybody anything. That eats away at me. Now, I know people on the opposite spectrum who I have, listen, people have loaned me money when when I was in really bad times financially. 
And I've always, I, I was afraid to buy any luxury bef- until that was all paid back. And that's, that's just, that's the way that I am. But I know people on the opposite side of that will, they'll go out. I, I gave a guy needed $500 to keep a storage unit. Next thing I know on Facebook, he's buying a motorcycle. I'm, what the fuck, man? I'm just like a chump. Like that's what, that's how I felt. And I, I don't understand that. Hear <laughs> funny story. Someone that we both know, Nikki Burke. Oh yeah. <clears throat> guy I graduated police academy with. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Went up getting married, and his apartment caught on fire. He lost like everything. So I reached out to all the academy classmates and said, "Why don't we all pitch in money? You know, we'll go down, give it to Nikki." I got in touch with his his supervisors and all that. We go down, we present him with a wad of money. He goes, "Come on, let's go out drinking." He took us all out drinking that night. <laughs> but that says <laughs> that's, well, that's Nikki Burke. That's, that's Hoboken for you. Now, when you were together with your wife, is you always wanted to be a father? You saw the the holes in your parents' relationship, and you could do better. Yeah. I mean, plus it's legacy. I think that's one of those things. I think life is meant to reproduce as simple as you want to think about it. And that's kind of like the way you, 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 you know, you You, stay on this earth. mm -hmm. So you have obviously children, you kind of raise them the way you, you want to raise them and still the values you want to instill. So technically they're a mirror of you. So you have little clones in a world. So when you pass away, they're carrying that kind of knowledge, you know, the stories, You've told them the way you've raised them and then keep going. So a lot of people are like, I don't want kids, but that's like, okay, what is the point of, I guess, life if not to, you know, I guess, procreate and reproduce in a way like that's the same. Keep keep the Prokopchuk name going. Yes. You have to keep that lineage going. (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of those things. I had an interesting interview. It's about like, um, like our primordial self and all the human systems. So taking all the systems out, like all the, you know, financial and the government structures, if you go to like the animal kingdom, they only, they only kill what they need. They don't overfish, overhunt, so on and so forth. And they continue to, you know, carry their lineage on. So it's kind of like diving down to that kind of level, I guess. You know, there is one caveat to that. There is one caveat that, cause I'm a, I'm a history guy. Okay. So, you know, Americans slaughtered the American Buffalo. Yeah. We just slaughtered them. Um, we didn't come up with that idea. Do you know who came up with that idea? No. The American Indians. Here's how they used to hunt buffalo, because there were so many of them. They used to pick an area, and they used to have one young brave dress up in a buffalo skin and start a stampede towards a cliff. Okay. And then all the buffalo would go over the cliff, and they would just go down there, and it was just easy hunting for them. There there wasn't enough Indians, American Indians, to hunt as many buffalo. There was, but, you know, we didn't help at all. (laughs) The Europeans didn't help at all. So you, you want to have kids. You want to continue that legacy. Your wife gets pregnant. Tell me about the joy inside. You, you're about to carry on the name. Well, the thing we were naturally trying in it, um, you know, it, we, well, you're she married. Wasn't getting I hope pregnant. you're yeah. trying. She, she wasn't getting obviously pregnant. So we went to a infertility uh, specialist. So she has uh found out she has endometriosis which make makes it tougher to get pregnant and uh basically went that route so in like three or four years spending probably in excess of a hundred thousand dollars out of pocket on different treatments a lot of stuff isn't covered uh by uh insurance so like uh egg retrieval so at one point like they pumped her up uh in terms of hormones, so they did an egg retrieval. So they retrieved like 30 eggs she produced. So she was like in so much pain. And then basically 
you know, created embryos out of that, um, graded the embryos and knew which ones boys, girls. And then we did basically uh, IVF, which is kind of the transfer of them, IUI and IVFs. That's how you, that's how you have like octuplets, though. You got to be careful. Yeah, well, I mean, if they put, if they put yeah. two, um, often if you have one, it'll split. But a lot of the time when they say, hey, put multiple, because sometimes you'll have one survive and one maybe not make it to term or just not uh, be feasible at all. But like if you have that lady Octomom or whatever, they mm. put a lot of embryos in her. Nadia they, Solomon. They, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they split. They keep splitting. They have a kind of like a, a keen sense of doing that. That was the amazing mitosis of her of her eggs. But what kind of pride did that, you know, when you when you finally, you insert the egg, you're ready to go. I'm going to be a dad. That had to be a joyful experience for you. Yeah, you see, like you're there. You see it happening, and you know you kind of monitor it. Um, I think I was there during the conception this. of my kids. Yeah. I'm not sure though. I'm really not sure, hundred <laughs> percent. I'm gonna stay away from that. <laughs> but would you see the sonograms and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. and um, you go like every few days and monitor like all the levels and whatnot because it's more more high risk and even before that you kind of have to trick the body that you're pregnant so for like two or three weeks prior i i had to give my wife these shots with like nasty gauge needles in her lower back to pro- progesterone and all kinds of other stuff that at this point like her body's like messed up like the nerve endings and everything i mean i hate needles so that's that's one thing for myself but like she had the brunt of that it's basically like getting your body hormonally to a point where you kind of trick yourself like yeah. your body's pregnant because anything you kind of put in your body in a way it tries to like safeguard it you know yeah. reject it or whatever. your body's gonna reject it yeah. exactly but then eventually disaster strikes <laughs> all right yep. so how how far along did did the baby get carried to uh all of well we we experienced in about three and a half years six miscarriages so all of them were in the first trimester the, the longest one was towards the end of the first. So the first one in particular, the first one in particular, when your wife loses the baby, we all know the pains that the women go through, and we're not discounting anything with the way the women feel. But very few people, this is a conversation that is never had. What what was it like for you? Kind of, you don't know how to act. You don't want to like upset your partner in a way because you want to try to stay be yeah, stay strong. Yeah, and, twofold. It's like you know she's dealing with it emotionally and the whole body aspect of it. So like her body is you know rejecting it. You have all the the hormonal components, all kind of like the the scarring and uh, the tissue damage and like lower back from all the needles and stuff. So it's kind of figuring out how to, I guess, in a way. Um, grieving, but kind of stepping on eggshells because you don't want to like say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And back then, like looking for any kind of resource of somebody else dealing with it, like, like a lot of men don't talk about it. So that's one reason I decided to kind of start sharing that because I didn't find a, a resource or anything, you know, to relate to it. So I feel like if you're experiencing something out there and there's no one to be the voice kind of, I'm sure there's the a lot of resources for women that go through it, right? Yeah. But nothing for men. Isn't that the way the world, it's, it's, it's a neglected s- section of that whole process. And that, like, there needs to be more men talking about how you feel because we're going to keep it inside. We're going to try to remain strong for our, for our wife, but, but inside, I imagine you're a mess. Well, yeah. And like I said, coupled with other things like childhood trauma and just like 
not being trusting throughout life based on like business relationships or like giving people the benefit of the doubt and having things like that kind of bubble up. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, talk to, you know, therapists about it, how we kind of feel about it, how we're coping with it. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, people experience a miscarriage a lot of the time that that's a big factor in terms of why couples split uh, split up because they can't do it. They can't handle it as well. So, right. You blame it on a woman and you leave. No, 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 no. It's the wrong way to do it. I was going to ask that. Did it cause any tension in a marriage or? Yeah, I mean, like, communication, I mean, I think, like, being from Eastern Europe and going through, like, childhood stuff, it's hard for me to open up to begin with, so it's like, it was like pulling teeth for me to kind of even share, so I think she wanted me to to have more emotion and share, but I was kind of, like, numb, just emotionally numb, and had to kind of get through it, I don't think I got to a point where it was satisfactory, like, what she wanted as a reaction, but I, I, I did the best I could, I guess. But that almost, that almost gives off like an air of, you really don't care. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you're trying to be the nice guy and do the nice thing and not say the wrong thing, but like, but in effect, it looks like you don't care. Like he said, there is no roadmap to this. He, you couldn't find any resources about it. After your wife lost that first child, what is the first, can you remember what the first thing you said to her was? Uh, probably I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, or just like, just, I don't think I said anything for a little bit. I think we kind of just sat there, um, and absorbed it in the way, like, I didn't, I didn't even know how to react. Like, I mean, how do you really, as a human react to this? If you're a human being, you know, if you're a human being, you have emotions, but like I said, you're walking that fine line. You're, you're trying to be conscious of the pain she's in and the hormones that are going on in her body and the rejection of this. But you're also trying to be her husband, her protector, fill that traditional role. Yeah. Plus it's like a trauma. Like when trauma happens, if it's a loss, like of a loved one or whatever, it's like, you're kind of in shock. I guess you're going through, like everybody goes through a grieving process differently and the grieving process, you know, may last longer, maybe shorter. But like, for me, I think I was more in like shock. So like numb and that had to kind of wear off. Uh, I think it was similar. My grandparents passed away. They were like, you know, the closest people in my life, my grandfather, more sudden, my grandmother this past summer. And it was one of those things where it's like shock at first. And then it's like shutting down. And then it's like thinking back, it's not fair to the people around me or like the people that brought me to the United States for me to just like abandon and like put a pause on like all my goals and aspirations and just, you know, communication with people. How much courage did it take for both you and your wife to get back up on the horse and try again? Cause I know. I mean, that the, had to be a discussion in itself. The pain of the loss yeah. alone. It's a fear that pe- very few people can ever fathom. Yeah. I mean, and well, obviously we did it because we did it, you know, six times and <laughs> we had six, six miscarriages. Like at this point, you know, I think, you know, we talked about it and I think she's going that, you know, infertility route, I think we're, we're done. If like God willing, you know, we get naturally pregnant, then, you know, you know, thank God. But other than that, putting her body and everything else through that process, uh, I don't think so. And it was just one of those things where I didn't necessarily push it. I think when, when she was ready for the conversation, I was, you know, on board for it. And like I mentioned off air, two of those, uh, miscarriages happened on Christmas day. So Christmas now has, you know, uh, behind your you know mine a negative connotation connotation to it 
Yeah. So did you, how did you specifically mourn the child that was, that was lost? Whether you believe a child is, is at conception or, you know, when it's trimester, it doesn't matter. You mourn for the loss of something that's a piece of you that's no longer here. How did you mourn, you and your wife mourn for that? I mean, I took some time to myself. I tried to pray, um, kind of like meditate about it. She actually got a tattoo of like doves, like little doves in the middle of the doves, like a little heart. So that's kind of her kind of like, um, I guess, remembrance yeah, of it. And, absolutely. And having that with her. Um, I mean, I just try to be there as much. I try to put her and her kind of well-being before myself, even though it may have not seemed like it to her. Because I think a lot of stuff in the U.S. or in general uh, that men do aren't necessarily like, you know, being providers or protectors or anything like that. Just one of those things where, like, you have to step up. I don't think it's it's viewed like, you know, you made the sacrifice, so on and so forth, because it's something like it's kind of ingrained in a way. So just kind of like stepping up and being strong in a way. But, I mean, I don't know if she would agree with me. I think maybe she would just say that I was more like reserved and, and closed in emotionally. But like I like you said, I think emotional vulnerability for me is um, not a weakness, but I'm guarded about it, you know, because, I mean, I've had that, I guess, kind of like used against me in a way or being emotionally vulnerable in situations or opening up where people use that against me either in business where it's trying to like go down to like a, a human level or just other relationships as well. I have noticed that when people have dual trauma, when they go through trauma together, and you can you can go on down the line, you know, people who serve in the military, in boot camp, they're going through all that hardship, they have a bond. You and your wife have gone through dual trauma together. It did it did it bond you closer in any way? I mean, I think so. I mean, like the other things we've experienced, a lot of like losses of family members, uh, you know, fostering twenty nine kids, now just recently adopting our son. I think it, it did because we have that connection and most people don't. And I think it's kind of like if you, if we can get through this, we can get through anything. The rest of the stuff's yeah. background noise. Yeah. It's most people, uh, break in situations like that. So like high, high pressure, high trauma. I mean, different things, different careers, stuff like that. It, it plays a toll. So each of those, I don't think hurt less, but it was just one of those things where, you weren't as positive each time. It was kind of like, you know, there's a high probability of this happening again. Do we really want to put ourselves through it and going through it together? Um, I, you know, some things like, like that, I don't think I can handle alone. Obviously the, the miscarriage is different, but uh, going through like, you know, having a child be reunified in a bad situation as a foster parent. Like if I was a single uh, dad as a foster parent, it's just like, I, I call it like emotional masochism because you know you're going to go through it and you put yourself through that pain anyway. Emotional masochism. I like that. I like that one a lot. You, you self, 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 national uh, masochism, you know, self -masochism. you're putting yourself out there. You yeah. know, it's going to happen. You know, the pain's going to happen, but you do it anyway, hoping the positive, the, the net positive result happens. Resisting success. That's it. That's it. It's the same, same theory. How did you get into foster fostering children? So basically after the, um, a few miscarriages, um, we, we thought about it, you know, what, what can possibly we do to potentially start a family? You know, if it's not going to be, uh, you know, 
conceiving naturally or through IVF? Could we potentially, you know, help kids in the process and potentially start a family? So one, we looked at outright like adoption and sometimes those are forty or fifty thousand dollars, especially overseas. Overseas, yeah. Yeah. So, doubt. you know, we've we spent a hundred K plus out of pocket on different infertility treatments and stuff like that. So we went to an orientation about foster care and knowing that there's a lot of not good foster homes and there's not enough people that genuinely want to, you know. Well, they, t- they work the system because you do, you do get funds to take care of that kid. To take care of the kid. It's not, it's a stipend in New Jersey. It's not like, Hey, you get paid. It's not for profit effort, but even in the orientation guy raises hands, like how many beds can I have in a room? like and teenagers because the older you get and and the kids with like different developmental delays or some medical conditions you get paid more for their um you know taking care yeah, of them as see well it as a business yeah, yeah so exactly. i was like yeah so i was like this is a little ridiculous and um you know the division of child services knows about it but they sometimes don't have enough homes to begin with you know so they kind of look the other way in a way like not necessarily like outright uh, this is abuse or the, right off the bat, or this is going to be like a neglectful situation, but you know, I can take seven kids or 10 kids. Uh, it's, it's a little, I wouldn't say sketchy because to begin with, you have like a home study. So they kind of interview and see why you're doing it. What, like, what are your goals? Living about, conditions. Yeah. Uh, living that you have to basically get the home licensed as well as you have a personal license as well, where they kind of like paint your story as a family, what you want to do as a family. They'll interview, like, let's say you go to a house of worship, they'll interview a pastor. What is this person's intentions? Like what, what is this person in terms of morals? Um, Look at your obviously finances, look at different uh, history in terms of crime committed. Like if you committed something like a fraud or something or defrauding somebody, maybe that's not the best person either. Well, did he check into like, sex crimes and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, they look into that, but I mean, those that haven't been reported, there's plenty of people out there that have done things to people that haven't been prosecuted and it's kind of like... Haven't been caught yet. Yep. You get, But it sounds like you have... Well, it's an easy sell to... It sounds sounds like the ideal family to, to... Foster a child. So it's it's an ideal situation for Dyfus because oh why do you want to ha- why do you want to foster kids? Um, my wife had six miscarriages and I have this love to give to be a parent. Um, maybe that might be have something to do with it. But you get that first kid in there. Two. You got first. You got two at once. Brothers dropped off. Basically, we <clears throat> so we were fostered to adopt. So basically, meaning if we have a child in our home, uh, parental rights are terminated. They would come to us first and ask, "Hey, is this a good fit?" Then, if the child is old enough, or like look at bonding evaluation. You know, do they connect? Does it seem like they have a connection? That kind of stuff. But uh, basically, we were licensed May thirty first of twenty eighteen. June first, two kids dropped off. Two brothers figure it out. So. Wow. They were just waiting. Well, they were transferred because they were in another home. And that person, I believe, took their initial checks and said, hey, I can't deal with them. So they came with no clothes because when a child goes in the system, they get an initial like check cut, like a clothing allowance, because oftentimes they'll come with a trash bag or nothing at all, like a dirty teddy bear. And you have to like run out and get them either a crib, you know, a a wardrobe of clothes, so on and so forth. So basically they came and it was just kind of like, hey, figure it out. And it was like a scare trade situation because, you know, and you, you do something called pride training. So it's about 10 
uh, set class sessions of three hours, like night classes to get like the formal aspect of it. And that there it's like sunshine and rainbows. Like everybody's great. This situation's <laughs> great. Like biological families are great. You're really going to connect. The division of child services will always be there for you. And it's like, not nah, like figure it out yourself. Oftentimes it's like situations where like we're advocating for the children and the caseworkers like, you know, doesn't matter what you say, you're never going to get me fired. So with that kind of mindset, you're not necessarily there to help the children. A lot of the time, good caseworkers get burnt out and it's like, I can't deal with this anymore. And the bad ones, you know, unfortunately stay. So it's, it's situations like that, but they were dropped off and it's like, Hey, let's figure it out. And, uh, I remember the first thing we did, we had to take them to Walmart with both of them. They don't know us. We're looking for clothing, different snacks. And like one of the children, like just like spits at, at my wife, the oh. older one, uh, one was about 18 months at the time. And one was about to turn three and yelling, you're not my mom, which is sketchy in a store because it's you're like, in a store. Uh, it's Walmart. It's perfectly <laughs> acceptable in Walmart. Yeah. Uh, you're not my mom. And uh, basically um, they were Spanish. So he basically said, I'm going to beat you with a chancleta, which is like a slipper. It's kind of like, you know, something you say in like a, a Spanish household. So there was that. And, you know, we fostered 29 kids in uh, four years. The most we had was five kids under the age of four, which was interesting. Um, in terms running of running a preschool there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, it teaches a baseball you, team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, starting five for a basketball team, right, yeah. but I mean, it teaches you a lot about yourself, about like what you're capable of. Because if you ask me a few years before, like, do you see yourself being a foster parent? Like, no, I can never like undertake that. Or like you let alone four years later, 29 kids. Like I said, five kids, uh, with the, uh, uh, age under four, all of them, and then, you know, adopting from the system and then dealing with everything in between, because I've tried to do a lot of, uh, you know, uh, media appearances and different like articles about like foster care reform and foster care advocacy, both on improving the process, because I feel like there's a lot of lacking therapy, especially when kids get reunified. There's no reunification therapy. So the child goes back right away. Mother's okay. Father's okay. Go yeah. back. Yeah. And like we do one check in 90 days and the case is closed. We, I mean, we've had kids come back after, you know, five, six weeks being reunified. But it's one of those things where you send a child back to the situation, the trauma happened. There's going to be different thoughts, different situations, different behavior. And we've had that. And it's never been one of those things where like, oh, this is a good idea. Because one, it costs the state more money. And two, it's like in terms of a foster parents, unfortunately, uh, voice we're like bottom of the totem pole even though we have the kids for the longest duration of the, uh, the time in the process when you let that kid go for whatever reason if they go to another foster home or they get reunified with their parents i don't think it's possible for you to house a child i mean think about it, a lower form of that you you foster a pet you foster a dog yeah. all right you will become emotionally attached to that dog you, you will to. you will become emotionally attached to the child, and then it's time to let them go. It's like miscarriages all over again. Yeah, it's that uh, emotional masochism. You know that's going to happen because if you're not adopting the child, it's not like a happily ever after. Say, say you're, you're almost setting yourself up for it. Like you said, <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's going to yeah. happen. You know exactly what's going to yeah. happen. They're going to come and take them, and most likely than not, the the biological parents or family are going to feel a certain way. They'll want to erase the whole foster care experience from the child's life. And regardless of how good you were, they'll try to take you out of it. And it's funny because we've been an offer to be a resource outside of that. Um, and the parents that were vocal about, I don't want anything. Like, they've asked us for things. We've had them over for 
you know, Sunday dinners where, you know, they were struggling with uh, substance abuse. We've encouraged them that we're proud of you, things like that. My wife actually took a flight out to Chicago to drive uh, a mom and her kids back because she got put in a bad situation, like 24 hours notice. She flew back, drove them back here, bought them a month or two of groceries to get them back on their feet. And that's stuff all out of pocket. We've taken... Majority of the kids to Disney World, Legoland, aquariums. We have like season passes everywhere. So when you're doing it for the right reasons, like you, you know, you're you're not profiting anything. You're getting those experiences and and hopefully imprinting some kind of like sense of normalcy. So if they go back to a broken family, or like for me personally, majority of the kids didn't have a father figure, or at, at times didn't even know who their father was. 70% so, of the incarcerated individuals come from a fatherless home. Yep. And majority of them have been in the foster care system at one point of their lives. So like you put those two things together, you're not doing anything to improve either in the upbringing of the child. How do you expect a, you know, a person that's not reacting on rage and impulses and because I, I feel like everybody in prison has no impulse control because a lot of the time, you know, you want to strangle somebody, you have like premeditated thoughts of doing something, but you know, better, you know, you're raised better, you know, there's consequences. And when you have like such rage or situations where you feel like you're worthless, you feel like you have nothing to live for and you just, you know, get in bad situations. So how, how long did the first two stay with you for? Uh, all from June 1st of 2018 to end of May of 2019. So about a year. Yep. And you became attached to them and then they go, did they get reunified or was it? Well, it was worse because they needed somewhere to place them and they knew we were fostered to adopt. And basically they positioned it like, you know, that we have these two kids, they're moving into adoption. Their mom's definitely going to lose parental rights. And that's not what ended up happening. So it was one of those things, you know, she started doing, she did everything she needed to do. Um, you know, they were with us for that duration of time. And did they calm down when they were with you? Yeah, they were, they, you know, um, usually kids get placed with us a lot of the time. Um, there's a significant change in terms of behavior or them being, I wouldn't say as normal because they've experienced things that adults may not experience, but as close to happy kids as possible, at least, you know, outwardly, some kids have came nonverbal um, from situations where um, there was a situation. We had a child, he came in the middle of the night, uh, you know, bloody nose, uh, bruised eyes, basically nonverbal. He was like uh, almost three. And uh, the situation was his mom was prostituting. So she would just beat the crap out of him and lock him in the closet while she was doing her business in the wow. apartment. Um, so that situation sucked too, because he was with us for, uh, a month and they found an aunt and they literally gave us no time to say goodbye. They're like, Oh, we're picking him up in a half hour. My wife was at, at work. She came like left work early, packed a few things up. And it just like, you know, we have an attack, like you said, we have an attachment with each child to a certain extent, even if they were with us for a few days or, you know, a few years. And like, I, I feel like you're not even given time to even say goodbye at times because it's so impersonal. Sometimes it's just like, it was so like grimy in a way because it was like an exchange. Like we didn't even drop the kids off. It's like, we dropped them off in a parking lot to a van. Seems with, very transactional. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was just like, yeah, it's like I, a drug deal. Yeah. How can you be this informal when it's like humans, you know, in human the emotion in there. Yeah. And it's, it, unfortunately it's, it's just a case number. And the more cases you close, the better you look because New Jersey was under, 
the uh, supervision of the federal government because I don't know how many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there was like a story. I don't know if you heard it. There was kids in like cages being kept in cages and a lot of them passed away. And just like the caseload was so crazy for, you know, uh, the caseworkers that things, you know, slip through the cracks. So, uh, I think this year they came out of that and they were like under government, federal government oversight. So they were kind of like doing all the right things per se. And I don't know if you ever heard of a book, it's called how to lie with statistics. You can get numbers yeah. to tell a story, whatever story you want to tell. You mean to be a numbers to yeah, make it look situa- any way you yeah, want. Yeah. There's situations like when a case is closed and they get, uh, they get back in the system, it's the same case and it doesn't count as a new case. So a child can be in the system 10 times, but it only counts as one. I used, I used to do accident studies and accident investigation. I, I know how statistics can be manipulated on anything. And uh, I guess it's no different with human beings. So you you have these this multitude of kids coming through your house, and then you adopt one that's finally not going to go anywhere. That had to be something real. Like that, that kid was either real special or something or the connection was just there. Yeah, it was, uh, we, I mean, as this recording happened, it was last Tuesday that you got the final, we went to court in, um, in, uh, Trenton. We, the judge took pictures with the judge. We did the whole little board saying I was, you know, in foster care for 900 and something days, you know, I'm finally peace out foster care. I was going to say, if we can get a picture of that, we could. Yeah. No, I'll definitely. If you want, I don't know if you, how you feel about that, but I mean, I don't want to exploit or anything. No, I I I posted on social just because. Now he was in foster care for nine hundred and some days <clears throat> from birth, basically. Basically, his so mom, he's your kid. I mean, yeah, he's, we he's we your basically kid. it wasn't a situation where it's like he knows nothing else. Yeah, somebody you know uh, instilled some you know bad behavior, and you're trying to correct it, or you know they're saying you know I miss my mom or my dad. Basically, his mom walked in the hospital, thought she had a stomach ache, and she he was basically hanging out of her. Uh, huh. He was born at four pounds. Uh, they didn't think he was going to make it uh, through the first week. Uh, because he couldn't breathe on himself uh, by himself, and then the second week he was able to kind of like um, you know get stable, and um, my wife was able to get him straight from the hospital. So straight from the hospital, um, his mom probably saw in in two and a half years she probably saw him like three times. Uh, he, he has five other siblings out there that were all the parental rights were terminated and they were adopted by other family members because it was different fathers and. Uh, he, she doesn't know who the father is. Unfortunately, it's a sad situation. She's 28. She's had five kids and she's been in, you know, drugs for, for her whole life. Does that ever stick in you a little bit? Cause here you have a person that obviously does not want to get pregnant. Yes. Doesn't want the kid. And here you and your wife are two saints. And I got to tell you, your sainthood is really disgusting. Cause you're really making me starting to feel like a really bad person. <laughs> I'm like, I, I got to do something. I got to do better. But here, here's somebody that never really deserved to be a parent. And you and your, your wife seem to be the most deserving people to be a parent. Does that ever get you a little bit? To a certain extent, but I think, I guess in life at this point, I mean, I'm only 38, but whatever you're dealt, you're dealt. You know what I mean? Everybody starts, some people are given a trust fund and some people are, you know, tossed in the trash. It doesn't matter like where you're going to end up or how you behave. Like you, you dictate that. If you wake up tomorrow, you can change, you know, the trajectory of your life. So although, yes, because I'm human, it's like, you know, what she just keeps getting, you know, pregnant or, you know, unfortunately raped or whatever the situation is. 
but um just knowing that you know a situation is a situation and things happen for a reason like you go through things you learn things you help other people that you know may experience the same things as you are and you know we have a blessing now regardless of how it happened we you know we have him and he's our son so you, you want to say his back, name uh tyler tyler okay getting getting back to that story we were talking off air and I said, I knew a girl who had a, a baby that was stillborn. Her and her husband are the nicest people you could ever meet, you know, and they wanted to raise kids. And she was almost resentful of all these like crackhead women just popping out kids left and right. And, you know, I mean, that, that's amazing. You know, there's two people like you and your wife that are deserving to have kids and can't have them. But these people who are undeserving. I mean, it's got, it's got almost trust your faith in God at some point, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's, um, why did good things happen to bad people? It's like, you know, this person d- did everything right. And you know, he has terminal cancer or something. Because Situations you and like your that. wife are strong enough to take it, my friend. That's probably the reason why. Cause if you are a God fearing man, doesn't give you anything that you're not prepared to do. It gives its hardest battles to the strongest warrior. I was just going to say that to the stuff, toughest soldiers. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So how did you morph this in? Do you talk about this on Digital Savage Experience? Uh, this These topics, yeah. when it, you know, fits the story, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's it. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, I mean, it started as a solo show. Uh, it's been going five years, and then I feel like if it stayed as a solo, I would have quit because, you know, it's just me talking to a microphone. There's no kind of, like, reflection. And then I started uh, interviewing people of all walks of life, and then it kind of morphed into like stuff that I'm actually interested in, like perseverance. You do a hell of a lot of uh, TikTok and Instagram clips. Yeah. And, oh my lord, do you do a lot? <laughs> yeah, but it's basically me trying to learn from my guests as well, or trying to think about things differently, or like getting a different perspective. Getting different perspective. <laughs> yeah, you want to take yeah. yourself out of a bubble. If you're surrounded by the same people over and over again, you can't get an outside perspective or think a little differently. So uh, just having people all walks of life, former criminals that changed their lives or found God, um, you know, people that, you know, I had a guy, he wrote a book called The uh, Unlucky Sperm Club, basically. His mom was uh, like 15 years old. He, she was raped by a local sheriff's deputy. Her, his grandfather found out, walked into the sheriff's department, shot the, the sheriff's deputy dead on the spot, killed another deputy. And basically he was, you know, out of grandfather and now this situation. So he was born into poverty and how he overcome that. Now he's a successful business person, motivational speaker. So just kind of like learning, you know, what p- makes people tick and why, why they became who they are. Why didn't they, you know, why aren't they on death row? Why are they doing something else with their lives? Sounds a lot like a podcast I know, Mike. Yeah, you're not kidding. It's very it's, so. Our podcasts have have very similar concepts. We bring guests in here, and you sitting here telling your story. I have learned so much. Every guest that comes in, I learn something from every single one. Some of the stuff I wish I'd never learned, but nevertheless, I do learn something from them, and it's a freeing experience. Has it given you like? Well, how's it changed your life? Has it made you give you a little bit more perspective on on your own life? It's perspective and it's in a way therapy because even if you go to therapy, I don't know if either of you went to therapy, that's how we started, but they don't (laughs) give you the answers. They're a guide. So technically a conversation could be guiding you to what you're looking for or a different way of thinking or helping you get through something, either like a mental roadblock or something you have going on. So I feel like, you know, any conversation and 
a podcast interview, it's like you jump right into it. It's like an intimate setting. You're discussing, well, depending on the show, uh, you know, kind of like life topics. It's not like you meet somebody maybe at a networking thing or like at a get together and it's just like superficial top, you know, who you are, what you do, so on and so forth. It's not like, you know, I've been through X, Y, Z. And oftentimes, like, I'll give my intro and it's like, oh, this is heavy. Like, let's dive into it. Mm. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's funny you say therapy. Therapy gives you the map, but you have to drive the car, right? They give you the groundwork for what you have to do. It's you that has to put your head to it and get through that. Now, if you came across somebody in your similar experience, now that you have a little bit of time under your belt with this trauma that you dealt with, the miscarriages, what do you think your best piece of advice is that you would give them? I think being uh, open about it and not necessarily, there's like, I don't know if it's like shame or just like um, a, a situation where it's like, you don't feel uh, adequate because of what happened, even though it's not your fault. So I feel like sharing it as soon as possible. And it's obviously something that's uh, puts you in a vulnerable state, but sharing it with somebody you trust is oftentimes like, you don't just like, cry in front of somebody you don't trust because you know that's not uh cohesive but if it's that one person like that friend or that family member that you can share it I'm not saying share it with the whole world or put a status update on facebook like if you're comfortable doing that and that's your way to maybe get people reaching out because like that's you that's cool but i mean i feel like at least telling it to one person um when you're ready Unburdening, unburdening yeah, it's yourself. lifting yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Or not yeah. carrying that kind of around. Now, uh, one question I have, do you plan on taking in more foster children with the intent to adopt or, or are you done shopping? <laughs> no. yeah. Yeah. Well, technically there should be a six month hold for like bonding when you adopt, even though he's been with us uh, since birth, it's more so where you like have uh, children that are legally free and you just happen to adopt them. And it's like, a honeymoon period where you're kind of learning yeah. about each other. Usually when they're older, we actually got a call to to take three kids like last night. <clears throat> so it's one of those things where they know, you know, we've had situations, like I said, it, it's like caseworker drops them off. Next month they come, the kid is now verbal. They, they drop them off. They're like, this kid hasn't smiled in like two months. They're running around laughing, playing, so on and so forth. So it's one of those things where we have a reputation, I think in the state of being a good home. Um, and, and helping kids, rare. yeah, helping kids turn around. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's helpful. It's also helpful kind of having a, a community. We've, we found a few groups where it's like foster care families, where it's like one thing to share with somebody out from an outside perspective, but when somebody's struggling in the same way, it's like, yeah, we understand. It's like, you know, it's, it's therapeutic in a sense where you're talking to somebody that understands as well. So we, we had that. And, you know, my wife's had some uh, foster moms that, you know, we were um, friends as well. So like we meet up my wife, uh, myself and two other families. And it's like 19 kids between all of us. It's like a whole, I don't know what team, but like we just can't go to a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to drop your kid off, go see Roman at one, two, three happy. No, but that, that, that's just, that's the whole theory behind group therapy. Yes. Yes. It's just, it's unreleasing that burden. It's to people who know, test. you know, you yes. could talk, you could talk to someone that has no concept of, of what you're going through. And it's really just talking until you talk to someone who knows what you're going through and is going through the same thing that you, that that's when you really start to get, get better. So why don't you give out your, you want to give out your social media? You want to give out your website? 
please feel free. Yeah, sure. Uh, Like you mentioned, the Digital Savage Experience is the same thing in terms of the website. And then just just my name everywhere, like every platform, I believe, at this point. So Roman Prokopchuk, it's tough. But if you like whatever, write it out, it'll autocorrect into it. Pro Cope. Yeah, it's not that hard. It's a hockey last name, hockey sounding last name. Three syllables. So. Three syllables. And uh, we'll put all the links in our in our show notes. So we're coming to the end of this thing here. And I asked the same question to all the guests. You've gone through the, the suffering of being an immigrant. You've gone through the suffering of miscarriages, of having abusive background, and, you know, going through the foster care system. What do you think that it's taught you? I, I feel like you don't have an option to kind of quit. I think when you get to a certain age, especially when you have children, biological, um, you know, or otherwise, you just kind of, uh, I guess, sacrifice, sacrifice yourself for the good of everybody around you. Um, I, and I feel like I've done that in, in a lot of situations, just putting yourself, um, I guess, in, in, in what you have to do uh, behind everything that's that's going on. And like I think uh, when you see the kids in, in the foster care system, what they're going through that they've experienced more things than uh, most people that it's like comical and certain things. Like I get a, you know, business email and somebody's complaining. I just want to like rattle off. Well, so-and-so child experienced so-and-so. So like, stop, stop whining. Or like, it's, I, I feel like it's first world versus third world problems. Somebody's yelling about not getting whipped cream in their cappuccino and somebody's dying of, you know, lack of water. It's, I think it's perspective. So when you experience these things, it, it changes your perspective it, it kind of humbles you and it, it, if I guess if you're strong enough, it, it creates you, I guess, a tool for, for doing good, you know? So, well, I certainly appreciate you coming in here. We, we've had a lot of people on here. I don't think we've ever had anybody with as big a heart as Roman and his wife. It's disgusting. I know. It's absolutely. Makes me want to <laughs> drive off a cliff. On I'm so self-hating right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, I'm dead serious when I say that. I've never, I don't think I've ever met someone with as big a heart as you and your wife. I mean, you're, that is fantastic. You're a rare individual. You are a rare individual in this world. I'm very thankful that I know you. I'm very thankful that you came in here. I appreciate it. Thank and you. you're part of our family now, so don't be a stranger. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this episode of the mm-hmm. Suffering Podcast. As always, let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. You don't see too many homeless Ukrainians. <laughs> Don't sit in the Western bubble. Legacy is our purpose. Emotional masochism is sometimes unavoidable. But most importantly, and I mean most importantly, Tyler has the parents he deserves, and you have the child you deserve. That's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Miscarriages with Roman Prokope Chuck. See how I got that? Prokope Chuck. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on all social media. You can always listen before you watch. All of our audio episodes come out on Sundays. Follow us on Instagram at The Suffering Podcast. Follow Mike at Mike underscore Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And we will see you on the next episode.